house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada water. Downsizing takes the pressure right off. Plus, you're really making a difference. You mean all that crap about saving the planet? Yeah. Downsizing is about saving yourself. We live like kings. Got the best houses, best restaurants, Cheesecake Factory. Got three of them. In Leisureland, your $52,000 translates to $12.5 million to live on for life. <sighs> wow. Do you understand that you will undergo the permanent and irreversible medical procedure commonly known as downsizing? and that your bodies will be approximately 0.0364% of their current mass and volume. Nervous? Uh, little. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that's Horse and Hound's favorite podcast. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Chris File, and I'm here, as always, with a miniature actress in a bathtub, Joe Reed. Uh, first of all, thank you for calling me miniature. And thank you for comparing me to Laura Dern. Two of the nicest things anybody's ever done. Listen, about me, I so. really fell on a sword here because if you are the Laura Dern in this presentation scenario, <laughs> I just called myself Neil Patrick Harris, which is not, you know, not really my vibe. <laughs> not, not I will say, uh, really good casting in that. And I think I would say a lot of the small roles in this movie, not to get ahead of myself into actual evaluation, but like Neil Patrick Harris is exactly the person you want to cast in that. Laura Dern does such a good job playing sort of insincere middle-classness. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the Margot Martindale uh, role is perfectly cast. Like the, a lot of these little roles these are... These teeny tiny one scene roles are perfectly tiny, cast yes. because yeah. it's dispensing so much information. You who likes an info dump. Yes. Uh, it, it does that in pieces, but with different performers. and. Yes. I think it's the only thing that maybe holds your attention in those long stretches before we get into the actual movie. That just DC Nash has a scene like that. Mm -hmm. She shows up, uh, uh, Donalyn Champlin, even from uh, James Girlfriend. James Vanderbeek, Jason Sudeikis. I think it's, I think all of those small little roles are really well cast with performers who, as soon as you see them, you really latch on to, like, it doesn't take you too long to sort of like figure out where they are in this ecosystem of what this world is. And I think that's all very good down to like the principal from election as Kristen Wiig's dad, like that kind of thing. (laughs) Like all of those small roles are really, really well cast. Um, The other thing that I think will be interesting to get into is I sort of peeked at your letterbox rating uh, for this before we started. Um, I ended up liking this movie a good bit more on second watch than I did on the first watch, which I was not expecting at all. And we're probably going to end up pretty far apart on what we think about this movie, which I think is very interesting and exciting. Yes. I, I, I still don't love it, but like, I think it's a more interesting movie. And I think 
succeeds at a higher ratio than I originally gave it credit for. I still think there are like crucial things about it that I find misguided and misjudged, mm-hmm. but, and I think it leaves a lot on the table is the other thing. But I think some of the ideas that it puts forth and that it executes, I think it does pretty effectively. And I'll be excited to talk about it with you it, um, and to disagree about it. Um, well, I, okay. I was, it wasn't as angry as a watch the first time because, but sure. it was the same level of having no patience for it. Yeah. But the first time it was like an angry, I don't have patience for this. Second, sure. I, it was very get on with it. This is so fragmented in a way that just feels messy, like Alexander Payne biting off more than he can chew. But I don't think I you're don't wrong think this there. This is a good movie. <laughs> I don't think you're wrong in the biting off more than he can chew portion. I think in some ways to me, there is some virtue in that and that like it really does try to say some big things. And I do think it it says some of them well. I also think like a big sticking point, if you look at a lot of the reviews and uh, is the fact that the Matt Damon character is so almost infuriatingly uncompelling and... Not to be like that that person who's like, well, that was that's how it was supposed to be. But I do feel like there is a sort of basic uh, component to this movie where like this character has to represent all of sort of middle class banality mm-hmm. and and he does. But what that means is you have two hours and fifteen minutes of tracking middle-class banality throughout the rest of this movie and by centering that uh and we can talk about that in a continuum with alexander payne's other movies which also like man loves a dissatisfied middle-aged white man (laughs) um but like by centering that you necessarily off-center characters like hong chow's character and Kristen wiggs character who i think succeed and fail in very different ways like i think especially watching this again i locked on to hong chow's performance a lot better than i did the first time around Mm -hmm. i remember being fairly mystified by the awards buzz for that performance relative to the rest of the movie that everybody else seems to hate um i still kind of hate what they do with the Kristen Wiig character. I again, this is all me getting ahead of myself. We should, yeah, we're gonna have a. I'll have a lot to say about like the different chapters, for lack of a better term, of this movie. Sure, but sure. to just continue on your thought about Matt Damon being tasked to play this average middle American, not particularly interesting guy, it's a huge problem with this movie that he. I think he's pretty miscast. Like, I don't know what Matt Damon could have done to make that interesting. And granted, he's played Middle Americans before. Like, in recent years, he's done basically Red State Drag for Tom McCarthy for that movie I hated, whatever it was called. I still haven't seen it. I gotta see it. I I don't think you do, my man. Um, I mean, just for... Well, I, I was about to say Tom McCarthy completism, but I've still never seen The Cobbler. So maybe he's one of those... Like uh, Joe Wright, where I just only see the good ones and and manage to uh, avoid the bad ones, at least until we talk about them with Katie on on this podcast. Um, But okay, so 
And I want to talk about the Damon character and who else could have played that character. Well, it was written were, for Paul Giamatti, who well, right, but I, plays these characters all the time and is great at it. Let's put a pin in that, though, because yeah. we did want to start off by not talking about this movie. Right. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's let's run through uh, a couple things before we really get into it. Uh, we just wrapped up our May miniseries. We, we wrapped up our May miniseries. I, dare I say, would call it our most successful miniseries. I would agree. Thus far. Also our biggest uh, experimentation. Biggest experimentation, certainly longest sustained series of five episodes in a row. Uh, listen, um, we are nothing if not auteurs of the form. I we will are say, innovators. I yes, we are if nothing else pioneers is what I would call mm-hmm. us. Um, very heartened by the response to the entertainment weekly discussions we were sort of nervous as we were recording these that like are we going to be trying people's patience getting to like an hour into the episode to talk about the movie and like listener if that was your experience we do extend our uh our thanks and gratitude for your patience um but we heard from a lot of people who really really loved the ew talk and while i don't anticipate us going to quite that length again of basically spending half the episodes talking about the EW issue that housed a certain movie. I do definitely see us seeking out old Entertainment Weekly issues that pertain to certain movies that we talk about and incorporating Certainly. that a little bit more because uh, you guys have said that you you like it. So. Yeah, yeah. Not not as, you know, we're not going to devote episodes to uh, the issues as well as the movie. Um, what I I would say probably because we really mixed it up with what we were doing for our mini series. I would imagine that May is just going to continue to be a time kind of reserved for us to, you know, try things a little different. Yes. Yeah. We already have a couple ideas in the hopper for next year that I am already kind of very excited (laughs) about deploying. So, um, uh, you know, stick with us for another year and we promise something super fun for next May as well. Uh, but in the short term, we've got some cool stuff coming up as well. Yeah, so. we are. We're back on track with regular episodes, including a huge milestone coming this month, our 200th episode. It genuinely, and I know it's become cliche to talk about the sort of time bending properties of the last few years under the the pandemic regime but it does feel like our 100th episode was so recent it really does not feel like the same amount of time that passed between our first our first and 100th episodes was the same as our 100th to our 200th it really feels I don't know. I don't know. Do do you feel the same way, or am I just experiencing? I, I, I truly can't keep track of time in regards to our show because I can't. Uh, there, I'm starting to get to the point where not only have I forgotten whatever we've talked about in certain episodes, uh-huh. but I've forgotten that we've talked about certain movies. I've uh-huh. because there's been things that I have almost proposed and said, "Let's do this movie." And we've done that. No, nope, we did it. Um, yeah. Not that we're running out of. Not by a long stretch. Not by a long stretch, especially as we continue. We are having more and more things added to the pile as the year goes on. But yes. was our 100th episode on Mother during the pandemic? Yes, it was. Wow. I remember recording it from my parents' house. That's the nice thing about like delineating is remembering where I was 
when we recorded episodes really helps me remember whether an episode was recorded in pandemic conditions or not. So like that at least helps. But yes, Mother was recorded uh, in the year 2020 and uh, under pandemic under pandemic rules. It was all-star rules and pandemic rules are in effect for the Mother episode. So Episode yeah. 200 is going to be an all-star episode, basically. It's going to be, I mean, we'll do the annual yearly, you know, recap of the show. But we've got a big movie on deck that we're going to have a lot to talk about. Long-time listeners are going to know that, you know, this is a special one for us. We don't even know all the special occasion stuff that we're going to deploy in that episode. So uh, imagine, imagine how excited you are that we that uh, you know this will be a surprise to us as well. So that's exactly. fun. Exactly. Uh, also, we are one day removed as we record this from the Cannes Film Festival announcing their awards for this year's crop of films. Chris, I want to congratulate you on winning the can pool that we ran among us and our uh, band of cohorts. I and... won the palm duh. <laughs> the palm doy, yes. something. What are we going? Winning, winning the pool, which we conducted as sort of a draft where you pick four uh, movies uh, as a roster. Winning without selecting the palm door winner, which was Triangle Or a Grand Sadness. Prix winner. Or Grand Prix, that's true. You really, you cleaned up with the lower awards. So well done. Re- let's remind the listeners what your four films that you selected. Oh, okay, for. what were my drafts? I drafted Decision to Leave. I, Which was I was the director luckily winner. an early drafter. So I was like, let me get one of those big ones first. Right, I, Park Chan-wook with the Best Director Award at Cannes. Very excited for that movie. Uh, we stand Tong Wei on this podcast. Um, that's right. What else did I draft? Tori and Lakita. You drafted Tori the Darden movie. Two time Palm winners, the Dardens. Likely Who, they would win a prize. They almost always do when they show up. They win something. I was just they, trying they, to like get points where I could get them. I wasn't trying they to They wanted to award the Dardens so much that they like just made up a prize to give them this. They time. didn't they make up like, a prize. They do the anniversary prize pretty much every five years. Yeah, but remember it's five still... years ago for the seventieth anniversary, they just gave one to Nicole Kidman, who had like four things at can that year. It was the Beguiled, it was Killing of a Sacred Deer, it was Top of the Lake, and twenty uh, seventeen? Something else, which is funny because if any year to give Nicole Kidman a prize just because it would have been this year for the accomplishments and the what she's done for cinema via the AMC uh, theater. Ad. Honorary Palm winner, the AMC ad. Honestly, can like get your shit together. You know what I hate? I mean, I don't hate this because the obvious reasons. I would have to go all the way across town to go to an AMC. So I have seen that. Had once in the theater, and it was before press. a press screening too. So it was like they 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 were doing me a solid in that instance. But I've never, you know, <laughs> your other two movies. Crowd. I have yes. a concern that if I saw it with a crowd, I would be the one reciting it, and no one else would be doing it. Everybody has all these fun stories of being in a crowd full of people who are reciting it. There's the meme going around now where someone went to Top Gun and was doing a naval salute or whatever to Nicole Kidman, which... Is that real or is that fake? I mean... I don't trust anything anymore. (laughs) No, it's right. It's true. Uh, Anyway, just to... uh, Your other two 
can selections were Holy Spider from um, Best Actress Border, Border Director Ali Abbasi and Layla's Brothers, which won the Fipresi Prize. What did what how did, did that how win? do we how do we pronounce that acronym? Fipresi? I don't know. Fipresi. Sure. I the Joe listen. Pesci Prize. The Joe Pesci Prize. It can went the to Layla's Brothers. The Joe Pesci Prize went to the Iranian film Layla's Brothers. So, on the subject of camp, obviously neither of us went, but we speak for yourself. Got all these. I've been recording from the French. <laughs> Shut Is up. it the Riviera? The French Riviera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 La Croissette. Um, We've been getting dispatches sort of via Twitter and perhaps from people that we know who are on site. Emerging from it without like devoting too much time into this, what are like the two or three movies that you are most excited to see relative to your excitement going into Cannes? Like what movies did Cannes really like crank up the excitement for you for? I mean, the thing, I'm going to sound like such a nerd or fanboy here, but None of the movies I'm most excited for were in competition. And the two that I probably came away the most feverish to see was Mia Hansen Love's new movie that was in director's Fortnite that Sony Classics will be releasing. I believe it's called uh, One Fine Morning. Um, Everybody I've talked to seemed to love that. I saw a lot of people saying it was the best thing they saw. um, Yes. uh, Starring Leia Seydoux. We'll see what Sony Classics does God, for that Leia movie. God, Sadu is everywhere this year, by the way. I like, mean. Truly. Days away from seeing the new Cronenberg, which, like, I would probably put that at the top of my list. But because I already have tickets to see it, it feels like it's happening or happened. So it, it Well, and help. also, like, going into Cannes, we were already pretty excited for Crimes of the Future. So. Right. I feel like Cannes can, like you know, crank up your excitement for certain things, which for me... Things we don't was, know when we're going to see. Right. Presumably so the Palm winner, can... Triangle of Sadness, from Ruben Osland, who did uh, the, the Square and uh, uh, Force Majeure, super, super, super excited to see that thing now. Um, rich assholes on a boat with vomit and, and poop. poop and despair. You know I don't love poop, but still. Um... Very excited to see that. Uh, Holy Spider, which we talked about a second ago, which is from the director of Border, and I loved Border. Um, and what else? I'm trying to think of like what else. I would say my this... number two, which is kind of surprising for me, uh, is Brett Morgan's David Bowie doc Moon Age Daydream, ah, which will be IMAX. Exciting. But it's all this footage that I believe most of it has is never been seen before. And like you hear musician documentary and you know exactly what you think it is, but it's apparently not that, you know, there's not talking heads in this interview or in this documentary. And it's apparently, you know, very visually exciting. Um, and it'll be an IMAX. So can I tell I'm you my so shameful excited. secret? What? That like, probably like will get me trumped out of, uh, you know, cine- cinephile circles forever and ever. Ah. I like a talking head documentary. I sometimes would prefer a talking head documentary. Some, I mean, like, some sometimes. of them can be really good and very entertaining. I would definitely recommend uh, coming up on HBO. The Janes is an incredibly entertaining uh, yes. talking head documentary. We both saw that uh, via Sundance. Um, I don't know. I just feel like there's, 
and this feels very like knee jerk, like anti critic thing, and I don't mean it to be, but like I do feel like there is a tendency for people who write about documentaries and who talk about documentaries critically to sort of put column A and column B and all the good movies are the ones that are not talking head movies and all the bad ones are the talking head movies. And it feels like a lot of people sort of binary that in a way that I find frustrating. But anyway, this is a total side tangent. Um, uh, The other movie that I'm kind of certainly more excited to see than I was going in uh, is this movie, The Eight Mountains, which won... What was the prize that that one won? It that won tied for the jury, jury prize. prize. Okay, uh, can we say just blanket before you go into it? No more can ties. Stop it. Oh, stop it. I I disagree. I and I, I <laughs> tweeted with Jordan Hoffman about this uh, yesterday because he was also bemoaning the ties. I will say I would not like a palm door tie. I would not, you know. But like, if we're talking about ties for uh, Grand Prix or the jury prize, those are already runner-up prizes. So like. It's it's weird. Hand them it out. is weird. If you want to honor more movies, just give them a special prize of a different category. You know, See, it doesn't I have find to that, be the same prize every year. I find that more condescending. I I'm I'm absolutely totally fine with with ties in those categories. Part of it is because I was running a pool and more ties meant more points, which meant more interest. <laughs> so like maybe that's my <laughs> perspective coming into this, but in general I'm all for ties. Do it. I, same thing with critics awards. If you want it, to, to go for it. Give a tie. There are eight bajillion things out there. Like sure. uh, tie them up. As far as I'm concerned. As far as uh, I'm but concerned, yeah. only Claire Denis won Grand Prix. <laughs> well, yeah. As far as Claire Denis is concerned, only Claire Denis won Grand Prix because apparently she filibustered on that stage and Hell, would not allow yeah, Lucas Don't for her to, to do anything. <laughs> Of the competition titles, the ones that I am most excited for are the Claire Denis and the Kelly Reichardt um, showing up. Sure. Well, you know when we talk about French actresses who I uh, live in fear of and would never want to ask them their opinions on anything? Claire Denis is kind of the apex of of that type, even though she's a director and not an actress. Um, I mean, she seems very sweet in interviews and such. She just doesn't put up with, like, stupid questions. She seems terrified. Listen, okay. she's not a social worker. My favorite quote. <laughs> like, but I'm see, a this is what I'm, I'm saying. Not a social worker. That's right, Claire. <laughs> I mean, all right. Anyway, what um, else are you excited from? Either in uh, from the can competition or not in the can competition. I mean, I mostly paid attention to the competition stuff, so I am less uh, well versed. But the um, the. Uh, Riley Keough movie that won um, the camera door, I am automatically pretty interested in uh, Mm -hmm. because I'm really into Riley Keough as an actress and a creative persona. So that sounds pretty cool. It's her directorial Um, debut with uh, Gina Gamble. Yeah. So I will say the benefits of doing this pool, I am much, much more plugged into all of the at least competition titles this year, which like I feel like is a nice this way I don't have to like come like September, October, be like, what is that movie? Why are people talking about that movie? And like <laughs> twelve different times somebody's gotta be like, it was a can. Like, okay. So uh we'll have a conversation uh, about Incent Regard and Director's Fortnite, so I, I can steer you along to other things. All right, all right, we'll do that. Okay, but moving on. Uh moving into back into downsizing. We are so, here to talk about downsizing. Indeed. You indeed. know, I was going to propose post 200, we do a bit where 
we say the song that had this been Oscar nominated, what song would Billy Crystal have used for this okay. movie? <laughs> this is coming out of absolutely nowhere, but okay, I'm into well, it. Well, it's mostly coming out of I was sitting there throughout the movie, kind of bored out of my mind, just saying, uh, uh-huh. like, downsizing. Okay, I was myself, just like about to say. River. Yeah. Oh, see, you're saying Moon River, Moon River, and I'm saying it in the in the cadence of Goldfinger because any three syllable <laughs> title, when I think of it in Billy Crystal song parody terms, I always if it's three syllables, it always is to Goldfinger as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, Moon River as well. That's a little more wistful. Yeah, I can see it. What else? What else could we do? Downsizing. Um, because sometimes he doesn't do it just as like a title parody. Sometimes he does it as like. Uh, thematic right so like what's a song like short people he could do like randy newman's short people which i you think is a very do, billy crystal uh kesha's timber <laughs> i'm going down i'm getting little <laughs> okay i'm you gonna give that size. to you again i don't know if billy crystal is gonna go for kesha but in a better world where he would that would be perfect all right let's tell move- us what you think billy crystal's favorite kesha song is right we're eager to hear it uh all right let's let's move into let's move into downsizing the sizing of down yes uh let's do the plot description uh before we just jump back into the movie i know we're gonna have a lot to say yeah listeners we are here to talk about downsizing written and directed by alexander payne co-written by jim taylor film stars matt damon hong chow christoph waltz udo kier Kristen wig rolf lasgard injured eggebergs uh, apologies if i got those wrong and in a slew of cameos we have laura dern neil patrick harris jason sudeikis jane howdy shell margo martindale donald and champlin nisi nash and james vanderbeek the movie opened the competition of the venice film festival uh, and then opened wide to December 22nd of 2017. Indeed. We'll get into all of that, too. Yes, yes. So, Joe, are you ready to give a 60-second plot description of Downsizing? Sure, let's try it. All right, then your 60-second plot description starts now. So the man called Ova and his Norwegian science pals invented a scientific process that can safely shrink people down to action figure size, a breakthrough that they think can save the environment because tiny people use far fewer resources and produce tiny people-sized amounts of uncompostable waste. Cut to 10 years later and downsizing is the hip new thing from middle-class milk toasts who want to live like rich assholes because your meager savings make you a millionaire as a shrinky dink. Matt Damon is one such middle-class milk toast, so he and his wife Kristen Wiig sign up to be shrunk, but she bails at the literal last eyebrow-shaving minute to cut Matt Damon uh, and cut to Matt Damon living a sad Kirk Van Houten condo life in shrunken acres below Christoph Waltz's Eurotrash fuckpad. It's there that Damon meets a Vietnamese dissident slash exile named Nok Lan Tran, who puts his occupational therapist skills to use helping uh, the inevitable downsized underclass. And then, for reasons, uh, for reasons, essentially, they end up going to Norway, and amid the fjords, the man called Ova tells them that the world is ending anyway, and they're going to live in a bunker to save humanity, and at first Damon wants to go, but Nok Lan doesn't, and he's in love with her, so they don't, and they stay, and they ride out the end of humanity, Helping people, the end. And you got it one second over time. Listeners, Damn. we are back to doing 60 second <laughs> description. We'll see. We'll see how long that lasts. You know what you get for that, Joe? You're going to get a tax credit for your <laughs> downsizing. So, all right. I could listen to Let's... Nishi Nash monologue about tax credits all day. Nishi Nash. Best part of the movie. Okay. All right. <laughs> this is how I want to start this off. 
because I feel like this is uh, a classic would you do it movie. And I want to start off by asking you, Chris File, would you do it? Would you downsize? Given everything we know about it going into, like giving everything that Matt Damon, all the information that Matt Damon and Kristen Wiig are given at the time that they make that decision, would you downsize if you lived in this world? I mean, no, it feels like they already say in the movie only 3% of the population does it. Right. So I feel like there's a lot of bad literature about downsizing that's available. And I, I conceive of myself as someone who would probably not do that. So I'm of several minds on this. A, um, a, an unreversible process would probably make me very, very, very reluctant to do it. And Indeed. it makes me very sympathetic to the Kristen Wiig character for the decision she ultimately makes. And we'll get to that in a second. The other thing is, though, is when we talk about how this movie is about how how easy it is to sell middle class people on the fantasy of living like a rich person. Exactly. It me. I am middle class people. Like, you can very easily uh, uh, lure me with the promise of living like a rich person. And I, mean, I would truly, want like, to that do is that. The, that is the small piece of several minds that I have about it. Because it's like, you're telling me I could live in a literal Barbie dream house? Absolutely. Uh-huh. Well, and this is the other thing, and you, your point about the 3% of the population, only 3% of the population doing it, is point well taken. But this is one of those things where, and I mean, this would maybe be a hard sell, but like if you and like 8 to 10 of your closest friends all decided to do this together, I think it would be great. You know what I mean? You would you would be little. You would have giant houses. You would have all of the friends y- you want, uh, at least to start. And you would have cheesecake factories and whatnot. Um, the I other mean, thing, I have too big of a family. Is the other thing my family's huge. So well, like... that I mean, yes, and that's but like the limitations of living as you know this lifestyle. We're in your you're in this sort of hermetically sealed community, yada yada. Um, yes, I think it. I think for people who like to do things like travel, I think people would would be a deterrent because like there's you know, only really so much you can do. We see these people obviously can like go on planes and go on trains and yada, yada, but like your ability to experience the world as a little person, I imagine would be uh, as a downsized person, I should say, because little person uh, kind of something else as a downsized person um, would be probably pretty limited, but I don't like traveling. (laughs) So, um, and the things that I don't like about travel, like feel kind of automated where it's like, load me up in a box and carry me someplace. I guess that's kind of what flying is, but like, I don't know. Flying seems much more death. I would imagine that. that a simple task, like flying or being in a car or, you know, a, a train, however they're transporting downsized people so that you can travel would be infinitely scarier. <laughs> well, okay. So let's talk about the nitpicks because, and I want to sort of get him out of the way because I'm very much willing to take this movie on its own terms and not have to spend the whole movie being like, but what if like a, a groundhog comes by and, you know, tramples the whole town? But also, what if a groundhog comes by and tramples the whole town? Like you, you are, this movie doesn't deal at all with the Terror implications. From below. With the implications of like, if there's like a rainstorm that would normally be like a slight inconvenience and like some people's basements but it's covered, get flooded, right? There's like a film over Leisureland. 
sure, there's a film, but I think at some point, like, some sort of... Some shit's coming out of the ground. Like, these people live in, like, a, a, like a, you know, Palm Springs-esque sort of environment. But, like, if you have a community that is anywhere where it would, like, snow and whatever, like, I feel like there are... The the implications for natural disaster sort of go up exponentially if you're living in a small community. Also, I just caught up on the staircase, and so I am very concerned about birds of prey. And so if yeah, you are I, in this I, community... Can you imagine how like, big a fucking regular-ass bird looks? That's what I mean. So if some sort of, like, raptor-type bird, a hawk or a falcon or whatever, decides to swoop down, like, that is, like... Godzilla-sized terror, and I would and watch that movie, though. Of course, I would watch that movie. That's the thing is, on some level, I almost I this you're it's about sound the hubris like, of man. It's just a regular pigeon. It does feel down like on all these people. It does feel like you could get a TV series worth of uh, what if scenarios in a world where people are shrunken down and just like just episode upon episode, not even like have like a long like you know, uh, arc-y story, but just sort of, like, standalone episodes of, like, what life is like in in these communities and, like, what implications are to all that sort of stuff. So, and the other thing is, for as much as the goal of this was to, like, shrink everybody, you're so dependent on regular-sized people to do things like carry you from place to place for for you know i i i imagine a world where everybody is little becomes kind of untenable and again exponentially more dangerous because you don't have the sort of provenance of regular sized people i think it sounds like one of those traps like elon musk just wants everybody to downsize so that you know they can all be killed and then the rich people can just have the earth to themselves so I don't I, I think that's actually a kind of a key thing. And this movie, one of the things that I think this movie does successfully is it sort of takes the given of a world sort of hurtling towards inhospitability or, you know, a disaster or, you know, the actual end of things and separates people's behaviors into a few different camps one of which is you know you want to pure self-interest which is christoph waltz and udo kier they are wealthy they are profiting off Clubbing. of this new normal they by the end are like we're not going to go into this bunker with these norwegian hippies we're probably going to be dead by the time this whole world goes up in smoke anyway so like smoke if you got them you have the uh, people like, you know, Matt Damon, who sort of follow the self-interest, the sort of middle-class self-interest of it all, of like, I'll do downsizing and pretend that it's because I'm doing something altruistic, but really it's because I want to live, you know, a more comfortable lifestyle. And then you have the Elon Musk big idea type, which in this movie aren't portrayed as egomaniac rich people, but instead sort of well-intentioned Nobel laureate types, Nobel Prize winner types, rather, right? which is a key distinction. But I think at the very least, you have like that type of solution uh, crystallized there. And to me, the movie succeeds best when it kind of 
interrogates. And then you have Nock Lan, who sees all of this and is like, listen, if the world's ending, I'm not getting out of this. And while I'm here, I am going to essentially help people out. And, and you know, if, if not everybody's going to be able to survive this, I am probably also not going to be able to survive this. So why don't I, in a metaphorical way, sort of shrink my existence down to who I can help and what I can do on a sort of human level? And so those are the different responses to a world hurtling towards catastrophe. And I think those are the ways in which this movie improved for me on second viewing, which is I do think... Payne and Jim Taylor have a good grasp of what they want to say about it. And it reminded me a lot of uh, Don't Look Up, which was so didactic and um, sort of sneering about it all. And I Mm -hmm. think this movie handles that same kind of uh, scenario in a more humane and sort of almost like behaviorally observant way if that makes sense no it does and i don't look up was a movie that i thought about in this too my problem with both movies actually is it's not really saying anything all that deep like all of these like different social strata that you're talking about like i don't think it really explores it in a way that's all that you know uniquely observed I will say, or, and like, because it's an Alexander Payne movie, one of the other frustrating things is it doesn't do it in a way that's funny. Like, yeah, I I don't know. It's fine. If he tries to make a straight drama, he basically has before, but I, I think this movie thinks it's funny when it's not. And there's an element of, you know, exploring the downsized world and the process of it that feels cutesy in a way that's, Mm -hmm. Yes. Not all that palatable to me. The um, tone of the comedy felt very Secret Life of Walter Mitty to me. And maybe yeah. that was the Kristen Wiig of it all. And like that is a tone that I don't sit well in. And mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know exactly what I how I'd want it different. Maybe sharper, maybe a little bit more biting, maybe a little bit more not necessarily clever, but like I don't know, like more sharply observed, I guess, about like little quirks of humanity, whereas this Mm -hmm. sort of gets the broad strokes of it, I think, well, but doesn't really sort of bore into sort of specific quirks of humanity as much. It's one of my problems with Alexander Payne's later work, you know, the post sideways work is that it's like, where are the knives anymore? I mean, I Mm -hmm. think I kind of think Nebraska is a mean and nasty little movie. Um or it, 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 in a specific way, we don't have to talk about that movie. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> it, it, we're not here to talk about Nebraska. Um, it, it, in a way that this movie could use something a little bit more biting and less, you know, warm and fuzzy in the way that I think it is. And maybe it's not trying to be, but it ultimately still is. I think where my larger issue is because i do agree with you and all of those dynamics you're talking about they're there i don't think they can be as effective as they would maybe be a without you know something a little more biting uh an observation right. that feels you know like its own you know something fresh but <laughs> this movie is so 
disjointed. You got the 60 seconds in in your plot description, but the thirty se- the first 30 seconds is the first 20 minutes of this movie. Right. I feel like it's kind of six different movies, which yes, it is. I can understand the ambition of Alexander Payne, who is a satirist, to push, you know, his normal satire towards an almost science fiction um, yeah. end of the spectrum. But it ultimately feels like a movie that's two hours longer than it is, and it's six different movies. This um, is why I feel like it would it would actually work as a TV series, because I do feel like the the fragmented nature of it I feel like there's a lot of avenues that Payne wants to explore here about this world and a lot of avenues he doesn't explore at all, which could have been uh, explored. And I think ultimately a, you know, 135 minute movie can only do so much. And trying to fit it all in makes it be, you know, the observation that you make about these hundred different things that you want to explore ends up being just a very simple observation about it it's not all that interesting or all that you know yeah well Well, and and your point about it not being as as sharp or as you know stabby as you maybe want it to be is my dissatisfaction with the ending where i do feel like and again i am not a script doctor i am not a filmmaker (laughs) i am probably not in the best position to tell somebody how to make their movie but i maybe don't have I maybe let Matt Damon choose to go to the bunker at the end of this movie and then end it on him realizing he's made the wrong choice. And I know that is like, that risks a really kind of bummer ending, but you're already talking about the end of the world and the movie definitely wants to end on a note of hopefulness. And I think there's a way to do that if you allow Naklan to be centered by the end of that movie, where Matt Damon stays in the bunker, he's made the wrong choice, as so many people of his social strata do, where, you know, the way the world is constructed has pushed him towards making this decision, and and one that he ultimately regrets, and then, and maybe then by the end, he finds a little bit of understanding for why Kristen Wiig bailed out at the last second, and then... Right. But then if you allow the movie to end, perhaps, on a centering of Naklan, who does make the decision to go out, like, I don't think, I don't think you need to have Matt Damon choose to be a better person to still end on an idea of hopefulness for the choice to help people just to, to, you know, and, and, and center her. Does that, you know what I mean? Uh, again, I too am not a script doctor, all of this, but a couple, it solves a couple problems. I still think it's a very messy movie, but it does solve a lot of problems if you have the type of ending that you described. A, because then it makes it, it makes it feel like an Alexander Payne movie, whereas mm-hmm. a lot of the rest of the movie, I feel like if it's not set in Omaha at the very beginning, if I showed you the movie and asked you who wrote and directed it, right, you would not say Alexander Payne. Um, but it makes it feel like an Alexander Payne movie if it has that Mm -hmm. ending and your protagonist realizes they made the wrong decision. Um, yeah, you know, but it also, you mentioned earlier that this is essentially a, what would you do or would you do it movie? And I really only think that this movie poses that question for the first 20 minutes, but if it's a larger theme of the movie where it's like, Ultimately, yeah. life is a series of 
irreversible decisions that you make. And the idea is people, especially people like Matt Damon's character, are more prone to make the wrong decision. You know, that actually feels like the movie is having its own point of view. Well, and again, if you if you allow the movie to be a little bit more centered on Nocklon, she is a character who does make a series of irreversible decisions that she tends to sort of trudge forward from, right? Where, mm-hmm. you know, she talks a lot actually in this movie about like my life after the TV box, because she's a Vietnamese uh, political dissident who is forcibly shrunken by the government as a punishment and she escapes along with other people in a, a, a TV box to like a target essentially in America. Um, and she's the only one who survives and she loses uh, the bottom part of her leg and she becomes kind of famous for it. And, and so that is this, that is her big sort of irreversible decision is to, you know, to make that escape. And now she's got this incredibly different life in the uh, what is it leisure leisure land mm-hmm. uh, is the community that they're in um even though she lives slightly outside of it and so now she has made that decision and has decided to you know she doesn't talk about that in it with regret as much as just sort of like well that happened and now i have decided to i'm going to you know help this lady who is dying of cancer and i am going to you know, bring these people food and I'm going to go to Norway to meet with this guy. And I'm going to now go back and just, there is a, you know, forward motion to that character that I feel like is a, is a nice counterpoint to the Matt Damon character who does sort of a lot of like leap and stand, you know what I mean? He'll like leap forward and then just sort of like, well, now I'm here and Mm -hmm. now I don't know what to do. Well, I mean, when she, when Hong Chao finally shows up in this movie, it is also that like propulsiveness you're talking about. She is kind of a relief to the movie because you have a character who all of the different ways that are a problem with this movie that she is portrayed. She is like you're saying, still this very forward character who like has a momentum that's interesting to watch and follow. Even if the movie doesn't, serve her or do it well where she is basically you know a mouthpiece to push his growth by the end of the movie basically and then they you know kind of shoehorn in this romance for the two of them Mm -hmm. that's i mean it needs to be there for so yeah yeah it it feels like that angle needs to be there in order for him to make the final decision that he does and I want to talk about Hong Chao for a second, though, and this performance, because this was the first thing I'd ever seen her in. I think subsequently, I've been really um, impressed, obviously, by her in a bunch of other roles, almost all of them on television. She was on uh, Watchmen for uh, a few episodes and was kind of amazing. She was on Homecoming. I believe it was the second season of Homecoming. Um, although I think she's in a few episodes of the first season as well. The um, the Julia Roberts based on a podcast uh, series on Amazon. And she was in, 
uh, that TV series. She was in one episode of the TV series Forever, the Fred Armisen, Maya Rudolph show that was also mm-hmm. on Amazon, that she and, um, oh, who was the other actor? Oh, it was Jason Mitchell, um, uh, who had sort of this like one-off episode on that show. And she's been pretty fantastic in all of them. But at this point, when I'd seen Downsizing in 2017, this was my first exposure to her because you and, would have also seen this probably we'll get into this but uh you saw this at toronto which i believe was before big little lies premiered where she's one of the like greek chorus of parents and she's probably the funniest one um no because that was early 2017 so i had seen her oh, in big right. little lies i guess i just hadn't made uh note of her there's i think a lot of you're right she's part of that sort of greek chorus mm-hmm. and i think it's very easy for those people to very get small part by. also yeah. an, another small part that she's wonderful in but i would believe that you hadn't seen this she's in inherent vice too mm, yeah inherent vice is another one of those movies where so i actually did you know what's funny i did remember her in that and it wasn't until after i'd seen downsizing that that i was reminded of that but she was also on treme which was a show that i didn't watch so like she was around but I think because downsizing is the first thing I see her in, and I know that this was reflected in a lot of other people's reactions to the movie too, where there was a lot of sort of trepidation about the way that this character is presented. This, um, she's obviously, she's speaking very heavily accented English that, uh, is, you know, is broken and fragmented. And there is a way in which you can read this character as a kind of, um, almost comic relief or or that that the audience is being directed to sort of see the way that she speaks and is sort of like bossing around the uh, Damon's character taking as, the piss out of him a little right but as a sort of contributing to the sort of lunacy of the situation that he's in especially like and this is what happens when you sort of so aggressively center his character that is an impression that changed a lot for me upon the second viewing. And maybe that is because I be, since become more aware of Hong Chao as an actress. And I can sort of see the little things that she's doing with this character. But I remember even at the time there was some hand wringing. And then also though, there were other perspectives because Hong Chao ultimately becomes the one sort of awardable portion of this movie. She's, mm-hmm. She gets awards buzz up until essentially Oscar nomination morning, where she gets left off of the supporting actress list. But the people who supported the performance, there was uh, a lot of, not a lot of, but there were some reactions to it that were like, listen, like there are people who speak broken English in this country. There are people mm-hmm. who come to this country and like, that is how they talk. They are, you know, human people with, you know, you know, agency and, and it doesn't make them automatically cringy. And, and you need to be able to sort of look past that and look to the performance and see and sort of judge it on its own merits, even independent of how the movie utilizes her. And that kind of made me want to go back and reconsider it as well. And so finally now being able to watch it a second time, I do, I see a little bit more of that. It is it is a lot less cringy for me than it than I felt the first time. And maybe I was feeling this sort of like reactionary, you know, white guilt reaction to a character like this. I well, don't know. Well, you, you were had seeing it early experience. too. And I mean, she yeah. wasn't 
part of the trailers and such. So, mm-hmm. you know, you're it's kind of right. designed for you to have a surprise or reaction to the performance. But yeah, and I mean. I, I mean, I definitely think that she's giving such a performance there. My thing is, when I watch this performance, I'm like, she's great. I already knew her to be great before I saw this movie, even if it was just small things. Like, I, I think her, I think it's just one scene in Inherent Vice is just so funny that, like, yeah. it's not necessarily written as funny, but, you know, her just, like, complete precision with dialogue is so great, and she's an amazing right. talent. But... It's just a lot of the movie. It's none of her fault, but it's just a lot of the movie's bullshit. And I, I think the way that she has is written, whether or not it's intended to be offensive or problematic in any way, it walks up to so many doors of it that, like, I feel like what Alexander Payne and Jim Taylor wrote is it's just unavoidable for people to feel that way. Um, while I also agree with what you're saying too. Yeah. I'm sort of looking to see what she's got. Uh, she's going to have a big year. <laughs> she, yeah. she will be um, in three, presumably, fall releases um, where she's playing supporting characters, one of which she has already gotten uh, good reviews and good notices for. She's in Kelly Reichardt's Showing Up, which was just a can. Yes. She'll also be in Searchlight's The Menu, which originally was supposed to be uh, an Alexander Payne movie. We will get into that. Um, and she... That is Ray Fiennes and Anya Taylor-Joy. It is about a couple who uh, move to a or travel to a remote island uh, to eat an, ex- an exclusive restaurant where the chef has prepared a lavish menu with some shocking surprises. So um, that sounds Directed interesting. Directed by Mark Milo, who uh, listeners will know from Succession. Yes, exactly. Um, and then she's in The Whale, mm-hmm. which I am very... We're both not uh, looking forward to that movie. Of. What I will say is she is probably the second largest part. I've read the play, despised it, um, but she's going to have a lot to work with in that movie. Yeah, uh, that is, of course, directed by Darren Aronofsky. That's the one where Brendan Fraser plays a uh sort of severely obese man uh one imagines with uh either a fat suit or cgi uh, uh yeah and he's uh, there's also gay stuff in there too it's just it's yeah. it's the play is uh ill-intended in my opinion to put it as kindly as i can and from hearing that from people who have seen and or read the play, combined with the fact that Darren, Ar- Darren Aronofsky's, who, again, Aronofsky is a filmmaker who I almost always really like. And, Same. but his approach to the human body is, um, I would say, ill suited to a film where the lead character's obesity is the central sort of issue. Darren Aronofsky tends to treat the human body as something that main characters sort of uh, punish or have punished. I'm thinking of like the wrestler and black swan. Well, and, and this is a character Requiem who is punishing himself. Um, right. And this, but, but there's a grotesquerie to the way that Aronofsky handles this kind of thing mm-hmm. that has been very effective in movies like the wrestler and black swan, but which if applied to this kind of character, in this kind of story is going to really bother me. 
in yeah. a like kind of significant way. And, I I am right there with you. Um, but it, I love Hong Chao, and I like. I think Hong Chao is going to be really great in that movie because she probably has the best role. But at the same time, she has other things to be excited about. Yes. Um, All right. Um, so this award season, we talked about it. Hong Chao ends up on a lot of short lists for best supporting actress. She was almost certainly sixth place. In the Oscar voting, uh, she was left off at the end. I remember feeling like she, along with Mary J. Blige for Mudbound, were sort of the two kind of... uh, Not that Mary J. Blige was unknown, but as an actress, she wasn't really somebody who you thought of in in that realm. But they were sort of the two sort of newbies to the Oscar scene that were both, you know threatening to to crash the party essentially in a way that i remember in 2013 i thought the same thing about daniel Bruhl and barkat abdi mm-hmm. as being these sort of just like oh like two sort of like brand new names to the oscar conversation like this is very interesting and cool and in that situation as well you got one and not the other and so in this one mary j blige gets the nomination for mudbound hong chow ends up losing out who do we feel like is the is, you know, if we could say that anybody sort of knocked her out. Definitely Leslie Manville, because Phantom Thread came on really strong as downsizing was going away. The thing about, this is a case, I think, that the timeline is a significant thing, because Hong Chao is SAG-nominated, Globe-nominated, and Critics' Choice-nominated. Critics' Choice-nominated when they nominate, like, seven people. So what does does any of it even mean? Um... But even still, that is a rare trio to hit and not to get the Oscar nomination. Right, right. And, and some of it has to do with the calendar of that movie because Downsizing has the, has the it hits all the big fall festivals. Uh, I don't think it went to New York, but it does Venice, Telluride, Toronto, right in the span of a few weeks of each other. And at mm-hmm. each festival, it gets a progressively more negative response. Right. Um, and then the movie doesn't open until Christmas, and that leaves a lot of time not only for people to kind of solidify their negative view of the movie, like the press that's seen it, but also for people to just forget about that movie. And then when it opens at Christmas, it bombs. Yeah. So, I mean, I ultimately think it has less to do with the performance that she didn't get nominated in that... It, it was a movie that wasn't liked. I feel like the Daniel Bruhl, Barkat Abdi comparison that you made is kind of an apt one because if you're saying Mary J. Blige is the analog there, well, in both scenarios, you have the performer in the the new-to-acting performer or new-to-the-Oscar-audience performer, and the one that gets nominated is the one that's in the more respected movie. People liked yeah. Rush more than downsizing, but... Right. But no, you're right. People liked Captain Phillips quite a bit more. Obviously, Captain Phillips, a Best Picture nominee that year, so it makes more sense that Barkat Opti gets nominated. Um, I should say I really... conceivably just outside the Best Picture lineup, you know? Yes. Uh, yeah, Mudbound, I, I really quite liked, actually. I don't Same. know if... I, I, th- I like Mary J. Blige in that movie. I don't know if... It's enough to have her crack my supporting actress lineup. In fact, I know it wouldn't have been, but 
I loved She's Rob Morgan that. in that movie. I also loved Carrie Mulligan in that movie. I think Carrie Mulligan's really fantastic in that. Um, the other oft-nominated person that year who did not get nominated for the Oscar was Holly Hunter in The Big Sick, who I also mm-hmm. feel like was probably... I think this is probably a category where the votes between... Like, Alison Janney and Laurie Metcalf were so far ahead of everybody else this year that yeah. I feel like the votes between number three and number seven, probably in this race, were pretty well spread out. You have uh, Octavia Spencer in The Shape of Water, who was nominated for the second straight year. She had been nominated for Hidden Figures uh, the year prior. Mary J. Blige, Leslie Manville, as you mentioned, for Phantom Thread, Hong Chow, and Holly Hunter. I imagine those five having... No one's too far ahead of anybody else among that five, is what I would guess. Because you think... Oh, of that three to seven. Yeah, I think three to seven. I think, I think you know, Janny, all the votes. Laurie Metcalf, almost all the votes. And then from that third place to seventh place, it probably is a pretty even split. I would maybe say that Mary J. Blige is probably safely third because like that narrative was so cemented, basically. Um, and possible. she had a great showing everywhere. Um, she also had the song nomination. Exactly. Um, yeah. And, and then, Octavia Spencer is representing the ultimate Best Picture winner. Uh, Shape of Water was very well respected. I, again, don't think there's enough in that performance to nominate her, but I was uh, roundly over uh, overruled by the Oscar voting public. <laughs> I understand the people that don't see enough in that performance. I've always been a major proponent of she's an integral uh, piece to the mathematics of that movie and making yeah. it work. Leslie Manville is by far my favorite part of Phantom Thread. I, as somebody who felt a little uh, out-enthusiasmed on that movie, I don't not like that movie, but like the 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 memification of that movie really made me feel like, did I hate that movie? And like everybody else loves it so much. Everybody really is, you know, shipping the central couple. Everybody's lining up to be like, this is what a real couple looks like. Like a real couple poisons each other with mushrooms. And I mean, I do feel like it's the most authentic marriage I've seen on screen. (laughs) See, this is what I'm saying. Maybe I am. Maybe, maybe the fact that I am not married uh, poisons me. No pun intended. Against that movie. Um, I mean, you can't take it literal. The poisoning isn't liter isn't literal. You know, it's the right. type of bartering, the uh, control, the uh, sways in dominance, whatever. Right, right, right. My, but I, again, Manville fucking rules in that movie. Her, you know, her big clip scene where she, you know, very. Uh, quietly and controlledly uh, tells Reynold Woodcock where he can where he can put it is great. Um, it's also really justice fantastic. for her not getting nominated for another year. One hundred percent, where she absolutely should have been nominated and probably should have won for yes. another year. I think she would have been my best actress winner in twenty ten for that movie. Uh, if you've not seen Mike Lee's Another Year, do yourselves a favor. If you are a um, if you are your friend group's perpetually single person, maybe take a um, gummy or something like that. I don't know. Like, take something that will calm your anxieties because you will see 
way too much of yourself in her character and perhaps need to uh, uh, whisper some affirmations to yourself afterwards. But um, yeah, she's I'll really save uh, my thoughts on that movie because I'm actually guesting on another podcast <gasps> to talk about it soon. I'll post, it to, our, uh, I'll post it to our Twitter when it arrives. Um, and then Holly Hunter in The Big Sick. I think she's fantastic. I really like that movie. I probably, and I know that like I get annoyed when people compare the apples and oranges of supporting actor versus supporting actress. Holly Hunter was not up against Ray Romano in any awards, but I do feel like of the two of them, Romano is maybe the one I would have voted for. I agree. More, uh, more heavily. I think he, I mean, they both rule in that movie, but he's got a couple scenes in that one, which are really fantastic. I remember I got this to elevator interview. goes all the way fucking down. This elevator goes all the way fucking down is my favorite line in that. And, <laughs> and probably many a movie. I remember I got to interview, um, uh, I got to interview Emily Gordon and Kamel Nanjiani for that movie when they were on the campaign trail for that, who were, and my rare, a rare in-person interview. Normally when I, you know, uh, in my strata that I was when I was at Decider, I was very much on the level of if I'm interviewing somebody, it's over the phone. Um, but that one, I got to go and interview them in person and they were just absolutely lovely and really like incredibly down to earth, really felt like I could like, you know, we're just sort of like having a chat with them, which is, you know, a good vibe uh, to put out. And especially if you are screenplay nominees. And, um, I remember I literally only had to like get the first half of my sentence out of it. Like Ray Romano was so good. That one line reading and Emily Gordon just goes, this elevator goes all the way fucking down. I'm like, yes. Um, So like, clearly that was the highlight for people who worked on the movie as well as uh, who saw it. So yeah, but very interesting, very interesting supporting actress here for a year that for me ultimately boils down to, Lori Metcalf, duh. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> I like, was going to say, my next question for you was going to be, can we can we just toss ourselves back into the battleground of the Allison Janney versus Lori Metcalf? Battleground is saying a lot. Nobody that you or I knew was advocating for Allison Janney. We were very much in no, the sub... People, people thought that it was a winnable fight, is my thing about it. And it's like, it's right. done. Allison Janney, I have always said, the second that she is nominated, she is winning. And that's exactly what happened. She ran the table the whole season. She was one of those actresses. And this was my... This is people are going to resent this comparison because people really liked people again in our circles, people in our circles really were kind of nasty towards Alice and Janney in a way that like, I don't think that performance is an Oscar winning performance either, but I get why it won. And I think she's a great actress. And I do feel like right. there is value in the way that she performed that character. I think that's what the movie was asking for. Anyway, she's um, legitimately funny in that movie. I mean, like I understand people have their problems with that movie. I think she's yeah. funny. She wouldn't, she wasn't my winner either. She probably wasn't even on my ballot, but there's a reason why you have you two fucked yet is a meme that people still use because it is a expertly delivered line. Um, but it reminds me of when Regina King was nominated for if Beale street could talk. And I'm like, yeah, there's no way she's losing. Do you see how many uh-huh. Emmys she's got on her shelf? Like this woman is beloved and all people needed was a reason to vote for her. And with Janney, I remember seeing I Tanya at the, at the premiere screening at Toronto. And I was like the way the, the ovation that the audience gave when her name comes up in the end credits, I remember I saw it with Katie and I think we both sort of looked at each other and we're just like, okay, like this is, this is going to be something. Um, obviously all of us and all of our, you know, 
know everything homosexual friends love, just <laughs> Laurie Metcalf the best, because that is a performance that is, um, I think, pitched to us in, you know, woman of a certain age is not respected the way she should be and is also incredibly funny and incredibly emotionally affecting. Like, yeah, we love Laurie Metcalf. Well, it's also, that's another performance where it's like every line reading is perfect, yep. but it's a different kind of perfect and, you know, good, bad, or indifferent. You can get more people to understand why an Allison Janney line reading is perfect than you can a Laurie Metcalf is a Laurie Metcalf line reading is perfect. And it just comes down to the numbers. Like you hate to be so gauche as to say popularity contest, but that's what it is. It's sure the amount of people you can get to understand that. And what's interesting is Laurie Metcalf's as much of an Emmy magnet as Allison Janney or Regina King. Actually, it just was, you know, a decade prior and, um, and also she became a Tony magnet also. So like Laurie Metcalf, it's rare that Laurie Metcalf loses awards. So like truly that was uh remember where you were on that night on that Oscar night. Cause Laurie Metcalf doesn't lose awards. And um, yeah. It's also, uh, I think a performance and a, a movie really that it's kind of a miracle that it did as well at the Oscars as it did. It got five yeah. nominations. Um, I mean, there's, it, it, while it is a heartwarming and uh, emotional movie, especially for people of a very specific age, the age group of the protagonist of the movie, it, it is a str- it, it is still an odd movie. It is mm-hmm. still not directly in the Oscars wheelhouse, even though it produces the emotions that it does. You know, <laughs> during that movie. Greta Gerwig talked a lot about Claire Denis' influence on her, and the movie is very right. structured in the way that right. Claire Denis does her movies. It's the it's a memory movie, and it's constructed, you know, like memory. It's it's an welcome, odd movie. So welcome like, to week one of the Chris File talks about Claire Denis podcast, which will last through clear through the end of this year <laughs> and uh, and possibly beyond. Um, no, that's a very good observation. The other thing I want to mention, though, is. The 2017 Oscar race, we sometimes kind of overlook it in, you know, it was the year after Moonlight La La Land, which was such a big thing. And it was the year before um, Green Book Bohemian Rhapsody, where we all lost our minds and, and, and you know, got so angry. You look at 2017, the three, I would get, I would venture to say the three most prominent and talked about movies in that Best Picture lineup, give or take a Three Billboards, which was another movie that got everybody angry and sort of hogged a lot of the oxygen in terms of the dialogue and discourse, which I think was ultimately a disservice to the um, the actual Best Picture race. It got a little bit less when he didn't get when Martin McDonough didn't get nominated for Best Director, but right. still, but it was I a think- little too late to give that oxygen to the movies that we loved, especially in the context of an award season. But you look at The Shape of Water, Get Out, and Lady Bird as essentially the three big Weird movies, movies. <laughs> of that of that uh, Best Picture lineup. Which Oscar anomalies, the type of thing that the Academy normally wouldn't go for. Downsizing and, would be the weird movie in another year. Yeah, and, but I think like I think that was a thing that didn't really get commented on enough, which was 
how for as much as people sort of love to fashionably bash the academy and talk about oscar bait movies and talk about how they're out of touch and now how they don't take chances and things like that and there are elements of probably all three of those movies that i mentioned that you could probably be like oh but lady bird is sentimental and oh but you know get out is trendy and oh but the shape of water lionizes old hollywood and i like i guess that is true but like Take a step back and just appreciate the fact that you had a Best Picture not lineup that was kind of dominated by... It's a Best Picture winner that opens with a deaf woman masturbating. That's the thing. It's just like, th- those three movies especially are maybe movies that in 20 years we look or a back... Mute woman. We look back and are just like, wow, like, you know, Holly- you know Hollywood was really tuned into something different that year and then you add to that phantom thread and then you add to that i mean i know call me by your name was under nominated but it still got you know call me by your name is closer to the norm of what oscar embraces than the shape of water is sure yeah but i'm i'm just saying that like it's it's a more daring best picture lineup than it gets credit for oh no i totally agree with you i mean i also think that that level of it's an oscar lineup of movies that they don't normally go for is part of the reason why shape of water won because the overall field of you know kind of oddities for lack of a better word kind of maybe dulled the sharp edges of shape of water that you know maybe allowed a voter who might have been put off or stingy about it uh Otherwise, I mean, it's also a very gory movie, too. And like this is, that didn't hold it back at all. This is a category where we've talked about it a lot of movies that you would love to see the vote totals. I would love to see what the vote totals and the and the way that, you know, the preferential ballot, you know, ordered the movies in this particular best picture year, because I I genuinely don't know. I genuinely don't know how this would have shaken out with uh, Shape of Water, Get Out, Lady Bird. You add in three billboards, which was so, you know, talked about, but didn't get the director nomination. You add in Dunkirk, which is such a technical achievement that you would Mm -hmm. imagine draws a lot of support from people in crafts uh, uh, branches. And and that how many votes does, you know, Call Me By Your Name pull away or Phantom Thread? Uh, The Post and Darkest Hour seem like also rands. And yet, like, it's a Spielberg movie and a World War II movie. So, like, those are two genres that you know, Oscar voters really love. So I would be really fascinated to see what order those movies ended up in. Yeah, totally. I, I mean, I definitely think Shape of Water has a strong lead, but sure. I sure. I would be curious about second place, if second place was Get Out or if it was Three Billboards. Yeah, yeah. And even just like beyond second place, like what order the other movies fell in. What was anyway. last? <laughs> yeah, honestly, yeah. Like we assume Darkest Hour, but like... I don't know. Who knows? Um, anyway, Darkest Star is a good movie. Okay. Where so else? Hong Chao was, you know, the big awards play talk for this movie. So there's not a whole lot else for us to talk about, except Downsizing was in the National Board of Reviews top 10 films of the year. Totally. I would argue a pretty cursed list, <laughs> even though it's very close to Oscar. 
So the best close to Oscar, right? The Oscar nominated best pictures on this list that we can sort of like lop out the post, which won best film of the year, which uh, national board of review was on it in a way that, uh, not everybody else was in that. The post was a great movie because it was, um, call me by your name, Dunkirk, get out lady bird, phantom threat. So those are the ones where the NBR and Oscar overlapped. The other ones, Chris, take us through it. Uh, The good movie, The Florida Project. Right. And then we have The Disaster Artist, which I had fun with and enjoyed at the time, but it's not going to be on anybody's top ten. I really enjoyed it. You and I sat next to each other, and we got our life at a lot of those uh, cameos and those jokes. You could tell where the gay people were in the audience, because (laughs) they're the ones screaming at Sharon Stone. They're the ones who are like, oh my god, oh my god, over Melanie Griffith. Anyway, (laughs) the other two nominees are two movies that I really, really don't like. (laughs) That got a lot of legitimacy in this year's Oscar race that drove me crazy the entire time. And it's Baby Driver and Logan. Baby Driver, the Kevin Spacey film. Logan, the canonical Western. Yeah. <gasps> yeah. Listen, I, I, I tried to wrap my head around Baby Driver for a while. I, that was a movie that I really, really wanted to walk out of that movie having loved. And I couldn't do it. And that was... I mean, whatever. We don't have to talk about Ansel Elgort at all. Not in a, you know, not when we still haven't had our requisite Alexander Payne conversation, which we will. But um, uh, a lot of people decided to uh, hang the failure of that movie on Ansel Elgort, and I feel like uh, that was probably misplaced. I think the failure of that movie ultimately is on uh, Edgar Wright. And I would say if any of the performances were bad, it was John Hamm, but I'm the only person who thinks that. So you know what? Um, it's just but yeah. not a movie that I like. It just I, it, I, I generally don't care for Edgar Wright, but I don't, I don't, I, it's, it's a lot of pastiche for me. And I realize people can have fun with that pastiche, but it doesn't make it on a certain level. And the other thing that just drove me crazy about Baby Driver is it made it just made me feel very uncool to be against that movie during the Oscar year because it's the type of thing that like many will tell you doesn't belong in the Oscar race because of just what it is and not because of the quality of it and I don't want to root against that movie. But Well, that's how I, I felt about it. Logan was I am yeah. a I am a superhero movie optimist. I will I'm not to the level of thinking that Spider-Man No Way Home should have been a Best Picture nominee. I am not a crazy person, but I will evaluate those movies on their merits and I will, I will, you know, appreciate the really good ones. And I do not have a chip on my shoulder about Marvel. I do not have a chip on my shoulder about superhero movies. What I will say is it was annoying that people put onto Logan this sense of well, here's a good superhero movie because it doesn't seem like a superhero movie. This is a movie that is a James Mangold Western, and that's why it's a good superhero movie is because it is a Western. Because of what it's attempting to do, not what it actually achieves. Right. Um, And ultimately, I'm like, well, that's condescending to me. To me, that is like, (laughs) oh, you know, all this movie had to do was conceptually go so far against the grain of the genre that we're going to give it credit for that to the degree of 
Oscar buzz for it and and top ten right, list stuff and people that treated it like some you know uh, monument of acting by the entire ensemble and Patrick Stewart deserves an Oscar. It's like I don't know. I I was also yeah. just very put off by the movie. Like whenever people dog X Y and Z superhero movie for being needlessly self serious and not earning its self seriousness. Yes. Just always like, have you seen Logan? This is my thing is people line up around the block to sort of knock the Christopher Nolan Batman movies for being self-serious. And then in the same breath, we'll be like, but Logan, now there's a movie. And I'm just like, what's, what am I missing here? What's yeah. at, at least Christopher Nolan is working within a genre without like despising it. And actually like, I don't know. I'm very much justice for, for Christopher Nolan's Batman movies <laughs> in a lot of ways where it's like, people will be like Christopher Nolan's movies were too self-serious, but the Snyder movies, I'm like, fuck you. Um, but anyway, 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 uh, what was I going to say? I was going to back up into something. We don't oh, like Logan. Can uh, we the talk- Logan thing. Wait, no, the last Logan thing I'm going to say, because if, if I'm going to be on the subject of uh, Joe sticks up for fuck boys in movies, uh, my favorite part <laughs> of Logan absolutely was Boyd Holbrook. So <laughs> suck it. All right. I want to talk about their top 10 independent films because they are also on one. I appreciate them going their own way in a little bit. Some sure. of those uh, people always talk about the National Board of Review, their top 10 feeling like, you know, placeholders for different things. And Logan definitely felt that. Um, yeah. They're independent films. Uh, just going to read them off alphabetically. A Ghost Story. Beatrice at Great. Dinner. Great. Fantastic. Brigsby Bear. Not fantastic. Bo- no. Lady Macbeth. Launches Great. Florence Pugh. Yeah. Logan Lucky. Excellent Great. call. Excellent yes. call. Uh, Loving Vincent. Terrible. Menasha, A24's first and until this year will be, I believe, their only non-English language release. And I liked that movie. Norman, Richard Gere in Norman. Oh, that's what that movie was. Good golly. Right. Richard Gere's mini genre of um, small independent movies where he seems to just sort of like um, wander or yeah. sort of like that feels like a, a, an unexplored genre that like nobody saw those movies. <laughs> uh, Patty Cake Dollar Sign National Board kind of Review was the only people who saw Patty Cake Dollar Sign. I kind of didn't hate that movie. I don't know how, what, if if that's a movie that we're supposed to to like or not like, but like nobody cared. Was... So neither. Um, that movie is fine. That movie. Bridget Everett's good in that movie. Yes, yes, love Bridget Everett. Um, That's just a movie that follows the formula very close. Yes, yes. You know, emerging talent, stars born type of things. You know, it does all of those things. Um, And then Wind River, which was a movie I did not like. Still have never seen it, but it is canonical um, Hawkeye and Scarlet Witch are friends cinema, which... If speaking of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I very, very much care about the uh, Hawkeye and Scarlet Witch being friends. So it is kind of surprising that I have not seen Wind River. I will say. It's Taylor Sheridan. Don't like his work. Taylor Sheridan, who is swimming in red state dollars right now, just like absolutely has uh, 12 swimming pools that are full of Yellowstone cash and 
uh, is richer than any of us will ever hope to be. Oh, he does that show? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not watching it. (laughs) Were you going to? I mean, probably not, but I will pointedly not watch it now. Um, There you go. What uh, let's let's bring it back to downsizing though. Yeah. We still let's, have more. Okay. Downsizing originally supposed to be a Paul Giamatti Reese Witherspoon joint, which I will say maybe a more interesting movie if it's Paul Giamatti. I think Reese Witherspoon made the right decision by not being in this movie. Right. Well that character is bad that it it a plays out like it's a character. twist, but it's not surprising at all. And I don't know. So let's let's lay it out though, because Kristen Wiig is all in the marketing for this movie. The marketing sells this movie as Matt Damon and Kristen Wiig are in this, you know, situation together. The twist is that she ends up abandoning him. And up until that point, I think the movie I feel like the feel like the movie is intending for me to feel at least some sympathy for her that whole scene with donald and champlin where she's reading off the like the fine print of the things that you know could go wrong and making them essentially sign their lives away and i'm watching Kristen wig in that scene you know internalizing all of that and and agreeing to it while while her eyes are saying i don't agree to this and i'm like i think she's very good in that scene and i'm like well now you have sold me into feeling sympathy for her and i'm watching that scene and i'm like hell no what i do that i absolutely agree right. with her i that's that seems terrifying that's the other thing why it's not a twist the movie kind of designs it that way though but then once it happens once she doesn't go through with it and she gets on the phone with damon and all of a sudden we get the one good laugh in the whole movie which is which is her one shaved eyebrow oh the visual gag yes she got as far as them shaving her head and shaving her one eyebrow and and she turned around and she but the way that they frame her in that where all of a sudden she's being unsympathetically hysterical and being like, uh, uh, you yeah. don't understand how bad I feel. Don't like, you know, her repeating, well, I feel bad. And isn't that enough? And making her seem like a kind of Asshole. superficial white woman about this whole thing. And it's like, Oh, now we're back into an Alexander Payne movie where even a movie that I love, like about Schmidt, about Schmidt centers Jack Nicholson's uh, POV so much that, all of these other characters, most of whom are women, most of whom are Kathy Bates and Hope Davis and, and June Squibb, are their functions in the movie are how they affect this guy or they hold this guy back or they somehow um, put roadblocks in front of this guy. And like, oh, all of a sudden now we're in Matt Damon's story and Kristen Wiig is the bitch who abandoned him. Yeah. And I don't like that at all. So... I'm not surprised that Reese Witherspoon was like, yeah, not for me. <laughs> Ultimately, maybe that's not why she made that decision. Maybe it was she just wanted to do Big Little Lies or something. I don't know. But um, yeah. Paul there was Giamatti, a lot of recasting though. that happened with this movie because this movie, much like another Paramount bomb this season, Suburbicon, was a script that sat around for a while. Alexander it was supposed Payne, to be their follow-up to Sideways? Mm-hmm. He wrote it in the two years after Sideways. This is why he spends so many years away from movie screens and his return is The Descendants. And it's like, you see kind of a big break in his work during that time because The Descendants comes out and it's this maudlin 
not funny, and they tried to say it was a drama, but that movie is definitely trying to be funny. Um, mm. Just real disconnect, to me at least, with the elements that make Alexander Payne's movies both funny and work. Um, I hate The Descendants so much. Descendants, another movie that falls into that, like, these female characters exist to fuck up the main male character's life. To the mm-hmm. point where, like, George Clooney's comatose wife is just like, God, why are you doing this to me? He does a whole monologue, like, yelling at her or something. It's yeah. terrible. Um, yeah. But this movie, for whatever reason, I would have to imagine it's funding because this is still a very expensive movie. And it's no surprise to me that the role written for Paul Giamatti when this movie does eventually happen is Matt Damon, the type of movie star that can get a budget for this movie, which is like, it's not, you know, it's not a Marvel budget. This is like a $65 million movie or something, but compared to the rest of Alexander Payne's work, you know, that's, that's a bump. But you look at sort of on a cosmic scale, you wait all this time, you finally do this movie, you cast Matt Damon because he is a movie star who's going to help you get your movie made. And yet the timing of when this movie comes out on a couple levels is unfortunate. It comes cursed. out, we'll talk about it. It comes out during a cursed time for Paramount, first of all, where um, this was the the tiff that it was. Uh, and I saw all three of these movies at TIFF, Downsizing, Suburbicon, and Mother. Mother is obviously a masterpiece, but Mother was a um, savaged by Reviled movie. Uh, F CinemaScore. Not really savaged by critics, though, but it opens during the festival. Savaged by a lot of critics. So it feels like it's all in one. The people who hated it were very over the top about how they hated it. Right. And, and combined with its financial failure, that was the narrative that took hold, right? Yeah. Um, Suburbicon, another Matt Damon movie, another big failure. So this was a disastrous fall season for Paramount. It culminated in uh, Cloverfield Paradox getting sold to Netflix for a... Oh, God, talk about cursed. That night where I had to stay up after the Super Bowl to watch the Cloverfield Paradox to write about how bad the Cloverfield Paradox was, <laughs> was one of my least favorite days. Because nobody say. knew that Netflix bought... Did anyone know that Netflix bought it or no? Because it, it was, was the Super surprise Bowl trailer, release. and it was like, it. we will drop it on Netflix once the Super Bowl is over. Yeah, it was a surprise drop. I don't know whether people knew or didn't know that it had been sold to Netflix, but they definitely didn't know that it was premiering on Super Bowl Sunday night until that day. Right. Um, so this was a, uh, bad time to be a Paramount movie. I will, f- I, I feel like Paramount has rebounded okay. They rebound the very next spring after this with A Quiet Place, which, right. You also have the pandemic where they didn't really release anything, um, but they'd also had a bad financial year leading up to this award season because they have the big monster trucks bomb. The, right. the whatever Transformers movie they did, I believe, lost money. Ghost in the Shell, oh, another boy. terrible PR. Oh, uh, boy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, okay, speaking of terrible PR, though, the other bad timing of this is you're getting Matt Damon at a time, maybe the worst possible time to have Matt Damon in your movie, where he is just foot-in-mouth after foot-in-mouth press appearance. So this fall of... 2017 you're already 
two years past his disastrous Project Greenlight moment where he, uh, Effie Brown, the black producer on the movie that they were making, is trying to make a case for hiring a director of color, or at the very least, just having a consideration for, given the subject matter of the script that they are making, that a considering a director of color would be important for a movie that has a, uh, a black prostitute character in the film. And on screen, in front of God and country, Matt Damon decides to, with his own two lips, say that uh, diversity is something that we handle in casting and not anywhere else. And uh, and it's said with the most condescending tone possible. And it uh, really kind of turned everybody against him. And he had been, up until that point, pretty charmed in a sort of PR way, where like people mm-hmm. kind of really loved him. Um, and so that was really bad. And then, so now, two years later, comes this downsizing press tour that is happening in the thick of the initial post-Harvey Weinstein Me Too moment, where he gets, of course, somebody whose career was made in a Miramax movie is obviously going to get asked about a lot of these things and almost at every turn says something that is not, that is really on the border of, at the very least, just tone deafness and would have almost all of them been better off if he had just been like, yeah, that's something to think about, and then ended the discussion, where he said to Peter Travers on ABC News um, about Me Too, he said, quote, I do believe that there's a spectrum of behavior, right? And we're going to have to figure out what, you know, there's a difference between, you know, patting someone on the butt and rape or child molestation, right? Both of these behaviors need to be confronted and eradicated without question, but they shouldn't be conflated, right? Um, Again, why is that your first concern with all of Why this? Why is that your first concern? He talked about Louis C.K. said, I don't know Louis C.K. I've never met him. I'm I'm a fan of his, but I don't imagine he's going to do those things again. You know what I mean? I imagine the price that he's paid at this point is so beyond anything that he, I just think that we have to kind of start delineating between what these behaviors are. Really should have said nothing because- uh, Should have said nothing. Uh, what the price that Louis C.K. had paid is nothing. Zero. (laughs) So, uh, so uh, Vox wrote a whole uh, article. Why won't Matt Damon stop talking? Vulture (laughs) wrote a post that said Matt Damon is sharing all his bad opinions on sexual misconduct. And of the Vulture post, um, uh, Oscar nominated actress, Minnie Driver, who, uh, dated Matt Damon, and that is a relationship that did not end well, uh, quote-tweeted the Vulture article when just said, good God, seriously? So, like, dunking on Matt Damon became a spectator sport at that point, so it was... Because why won't Matt Damon stop talking? And he doesn't. That's kind of why we ruefully laugh, because there would still be more years of shit that he would continue to say. They fully kept him out of the last duel, like, press tour. Yes, and he what was, is the headliner of the movie. He has the most screen time in that movie. What was he promoting when he kept talking about how his his daughter his daughter had to tell him to, to teach him about how to not be homophobic? Right. 
His daughter, no, his daughter taught him to not say the F slur anymore. Right, that's what it was. His daughter taught him, and he's telling this as if it's, it's this heartwarming. Like, we want to be like tale. when she was three. She taught you that when she was three, maybe. But no, and it was like, yeah, last year my daughter finally uh, told me that it's not cool to say the F slur. So, um, on one level, kind of like necessarily illuminating of uh, where white. A-listers are maybe at in Hollywood that we can, you know, especially Bostonian heterosexuals. Well, I was going to say these people who sort of we assume that like, well, they live in Hollywood, so I'm sure they're just steeped in in good liberal attitudes and whatever. And uh, and again, Matt Damon's not a monster. Matt Damon is a privileged white person who probably has not had to deal with the implications of a lot of these things. So we can afford to take the perspective of, oh, God, what if this happened to me as what if this happened to me, a white person who somebody didn't like the way I complimented their you know outfit or whatever, instead of, oh, God, what if this happened to me? I got sexually harassed. Like, that is the perspective that a white man does not have to consider. So, right. Anyway, um, we should also mention Alexander Payne uh, in the years after this. This was not a consideration while downsizing was uh, in theaters or whatever. Accused by Rose McGowan of uh, statutory rape when she says she was 15 and he was 28 that they had slept together. Uh, Alexander Payne admits that they had a consensual encounter, but insists that she was of legal age. And we kind of didn't really hear too much more. She, Rose McGowan responded to that and was just like, yeah, he's lying. So he hasn't, he hasn't made anything since then though. He was originally attached to do the menu. Right. uh, With Emma Stone, I believe. But he does have a movie coming out this year, if I am not mistaken. He's filming a movie with Paul Giamatti, Divine Joy Randolph. Um, who else is in this movie? Let me pull it up. There's another name. Yeah. Uh, Carrie Preston is in this movie, is the other name. Who I love. Carrie Preston's great. Um, so, yes. Yeah, so, uh, definitely the the jury, metaphorically, is definitely out on where Alexander Payne's career will move now and whether this is a thing that will either conveniently disappear as often sometimes these things do or whether this will be a thing that comes up sort of again and again and again with him and will ultimately make it very difficult to uh, market this next movie that he's making so Indeed. which is called what did we say it's called the holdovers the holdovers yeah so i'm also just the, the way the as his work has gone in the past decade or so i'm also not confident that it's gonna be any good so it may not be something we have to deal with even though so we love this is a thing though that i sometimes and again this is coming from a very limited perspective of me as an end user movie viewer so like i don't you know I have no desire to pontificate as to things like, you know, harm and and sexual harassment, whatever. But I sometimes am leery of this sort of convenience of, of looking at art from problematic people and being like, well, it's bad. So I don't have to, I don't have to think too seriously about it. Right. No, I under, I understand 
that. And I'm not saying that it's his work is bad because there's accusations against him. Right. But right. I mean, and, and I don't want to. My thing is, what if it's a great movie? What if it's a great movie and then movies are bad? No, I know. But my, I, I guess this was sort of my thing with with, you know, J.K. Rowling, too, is if your response to everything that J.K. Rowling is saying is like, well, those Harry Potter books were shit anyway. And it's like, congratulations. Like, this is now you don't have to worry about it because you always thought they were bad books. And like, it's not when she is a force for bad in this world. Absolutely. The consideration isn't what when somebody who is a force for bad in this world does bad art to me it's much more difficult to be like what if somebody is a force for bad in this world and does good art or does at least like art that has entertained you then you have to actually grapple with it for a while and just be like yeah this thing that i really enjoyed i really enjoyed and i'm not going to be able to get away from that but also the person who made it is a force for evil in this world and and you know deal with it anyway and you can't deal with it in a way that's going to give a soundbite, you know, it's, you know. Exactly, exactly. Anyway, that is our uh, unpleasantness corner for, <laughs> for this film. Anything else we want to say about it? Let me dip into my old, the old notebook. Again, my th- my thing with this movie is, like, you could lob off a portion of the movie or, like, take one of its chapters and make that be the whole movie, and I think it's an infinitely better movie. Like, I almost want the version of the movie where he's never downsized and it's all about the lead up to that you know the decision where, where yeah. it truly is a would you do it movie and, uh, you know, you're left to deal with all of that because it's just, the tone of it is so hard to... You can't tell what the tone is trying to be because the movie itself and the kind of movie it is is constantly changing. Um, The section where he's just, you know, dancing and raving with Christoph Waltz is a lot of wasted time. Uh, I don't know. I will say this movie to me had some moments of effective kind of almost like short film sequences, the whole sequence of him actually going through the downsizing that is conveyed without dialogue or whatever is kind of fascinating to watch the sort of like all the little things they got to take out as fillings and they've got to, you know, they've got to shave them and they've got to, you know, stick the enema tube and whatnot. And that it all towards the end, after they get shrunk, the sight gag of the nurses coming in with their little spatulas <laughs> to scoop them up, I thought was very funny. And again, that's to me the kind of thing that Alexander Payne does well, is that kind of, you know, those absurd little touches in a way that I find, you know, very funny. The other um, note that I wrote down was the Vanderbeek scene that we see at the beginning in the background is playing the Bodine song closer to free, which was the theme song to party of five. I know James <laughs> Vanderbeek was not the star of party of five, but like was on television at around the same time and was kind of pitched towards similar audiences. And I only ever hear that song in conjunction to party of five. And it just made me kind of laugh and smile. So I enjoyed that. Um, what else? What else? What else? Oh, uh, Nakalan's uh, uh, Eight Kinds of Fucks. She talks about how uh, Americans, 
American people have eight kinds of fucks. There's love fuck, hate fuck, sex only fuck, drunk fuck, buddy fuck, pity fuck, breakup fuck, and makeup fuck. I feel like there are more than that. Mm. I feel like we have a whole spectrum of, of you know, uh, I get, I get, you know. Did she say sad clever. fuck? She doesn't. I mean. I mean, sometimes people just fuck because they're sad. Yeah. Yeah. I guess sex only fuck encompasses things like, you know. Mm, too big fuck. of an umbrella term. Too big of an umbrella. Anyway. Is there bored uh, fuck? There's bored fuck. No, I would say bored fuck, but like there's no, there's nothing in there that, that says that. But anyway. Um, Hong Chao's very good in this movie. All right. I'm good. I'm also good. Uh, would you like to explain the IMDb game to our listeners? Yeah, every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game, where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try and guess the top uh, four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television, voice-only performances, or non-acting credits, we mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue. If that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. Uh, eight kinds of fucks. <laughs> eight kinds of hints, eight kinds of fucks. Yes, exactly. Um, so would you like to give her guess first? I'll guess first. Okay. Uh, So for you, I went into the Alexander Payne uh, cast roster, Uh including one of his Oscar nominees. I chose for you, Miss June Squibb. Okay. Interesting. Any television? No television. Okay. Well, Nebraska seems pretty clear cut nebraska correct i imagine the other alexander payne movie about schmidt is also there about schmidt correct she's not going to be on there for in and out even though she's one of the old ladies who uh dance to the village people at the end of that movie which is very fun great Um, sequence yes okay so oh she's oh She's one of the old ladies who's a friend of, I want to say it's in, uh, I'll see, uh, is it I'll See You in My Dreams, the Blythe Danner one? Is that your guess? Yes. It's incorrect. Not I'll See You in My Dreams, but she is in that movie. Right? She's one of Blythe Danner's friends. Yes. Along with Rhea Perlman and... Mary Kay Place? Maybe. Maybe. I think maybe. We both really like that movie. Yeah, it's good. All right, June. June Squibb. The Great June Squib. Um, I feel like there was something where I was watching something and it was like older, and I was like, "Huh, June Squib? Who knew?" But I can't, um, can't possibly place it, which is too bad. Um, I feel like there was another. I feel like in the wake of Nebraska, there was a lot of like June Squib is an ornery old lady, and <laughs> I know she was in Glee, and I know television doesn't count, so whatever. Um, What's the movie where she wears like a dirty T-shirt? Oh God, some stupid movie for tweens or something. You know the tweens who love June Squib that flock to <laughs> no, but uh, it's like June. Dirty Grandpa or something. Like this is Probably. not a movie for adults. Um, all right, all right, all right. What else is she in? She's in... Oh, man. All right, all right, all right, all right. Oh, she's um in that movie Love the Coopers. 
Incorrect. Not love the Coopers. So you're going to get your years. Your years are 1997 and 2020. So it is one of the older ones. Okay. This is 2020. This is 2020. God, right, that well, show that show should have let us know all along with our news programs that 2020 was the year of the curse. Is 2020 Hubie Halloween? It is not Hubie Halloween. Damn it! All right. All right, put a pin in 2020. 1997. What is 1997? Oh, 1997 is In-N-Out. Is it it in is In-N-Out. In-N-Out. Really? That's amazing. She's, like, barely in that movie. That's so funny. Credited as Cousin Gretchen. Sure. She does dance to, to the village people, so that is fun. Um, okay. 2020. Gonna need a hint. Oh, 2020. Uh, we disagree on this movie. <laughs> Chris, that's many movies. Um, <laughs> what uh, in the cursedness in of 2020, this does have a very particular distinction for you distinction in the cursedness of it yeah perhaps in a way that you could mark uh the way things perhaps began in 2020 oh so it's from early 2020 uh no but for you it was but for me it was it might have been oh oh is it palm springs it is palm springs i don't remember her in palm springs but Maybe okay. that's the movie where she wears yeah. like a t-shirt. That was that's the last movie I saw something. in a theater before the pandemic. You're right. I saw an early screening of, of Palm Springs and then everybody had to watch it on uh, on Hulu. On Hulu. So, um, good movie. Not my favorite. All right. So that's me. That's it. That's it. I got it. That is it. All. all right. I'm surprised it wasn't the humans now that I think about it. Well, she doesn't speak in the humans or she it's mumbles. True. It's true. But also we're two of the 15 people that saw the humans also true yes all right uh chris for you i also went into the alexander payne filmography i went early uh one of the stars of his film citizen ruth the great laura dern movie citizen ruth wonderful was kelly preston really i haven't seen citizen ruth in a minute same here realize that the dearly departed kelly preston uh was in it i didn't remember um jerry Maguire. Correct, Jerry Maguire, where she uh, hops upon his his uh, his penis and and, and <laughs> cries out in ecstasy. Not this. I need to rewatch Jerry Maguire. Um, it is a very enthusiastically filmed sex scene where you see her from like the clavicle up. Uh, very notorious during my childhood of uh, the sex scene of that movie, etc. Yes. Um. Uh, for love of the game, yes. the baseball movie. Did you just listen to that episode of Blank Check? Is that why you were thinking of it? Maybe. I same <laughs> same. I would not have remembered her being in that movie otherwise. Same. Um, yeah. Uh, is it like Battlefield Earth? Yes, it is Battlefield yeah. Earth. You absolute psychopath. She's not in a lot of a lot of movies. Or she wasn't. sure, but Maybe still. Um. Okay, is the fourth one Gotti? It's not. Although, ah. what if it was? You do not get a perfect score because you guessed Gotti, and I feel like that's only cosmic justice. <laughs> okay. Um, is it the Cat in the Hat? She's the mom in Cat in the Hat. It is not the Cat in the Hat. So that's okay. two strikes. Your 
remaining film is 2003. Isn't that the year Which of was, the cat in fact, Matt? Was the year of the cat Matt. Yes. Great. Um, so clearly she was riding high that year. Oh, she's uh, another reviled movie. She's It's got to be a view from the top. It's not. I was not. I was not delivering a pun when I said riding high. So it is not, in fact, a view from the top. Damn. It is her other. Her other two thousand three movie besides those two. Wow. Um. Okay. Let me know if you want hints. What? Let me know if and when you want hints. Oh, I want hints. Okay, so she plays the mother of the main character, I believe. Um, this main character, um, was sort of a, a teen star at the time Uh from television. She had been sort of a child star on one of the child friendly networks. A Nickelodeon star. Uh, yes. Hilary Duff. No, she was, I believe, Disney Channel. Okay. Oh, Nickelodeon. Amanda Bynes. Yes. Um, It's not First Daughter, but it's basically First Daughter. But it's mm-hmm. British? Is it Colin Firth is the like British person? Yeah, you're, hitting all the, you're hitting all the marks. What is this movie called? Um, uh, same title as a pop song that was popular uh, maybe a few years before. What a Girl Wants. Yes, What a Girl Wants. Yeah. Yep, 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 yep. She's the daughter of... um, Like Prime Minister or something? Yes, I think that's right. I think so. Here's what I'm going to tell you. I've never seen What a Girl Wants. I haven't either. I've actually really behind on, like, that era on your 2003 movies. movies you really got it you, you stopped you, you slowed down and spent all that time watching the missing <laughs> um all right all right all right and that's, we're done. A, that's a good episode back to normal it's still two hours doing this episode as yes. we would normally do our episodes but i think it was a good one if you want more of this had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at this had Oscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow us on Twitter at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Joe, where can listeners find more of you? Uh, Twitter, letterboxed, both at Joe Reed, Reed, R-E-I-D. Uh, you can find me downsized with my uh, little eyes and little lies on Twitter and <laughs> oh Letterboxd at Chris V. File. That's F-E-I-L. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez Gathered Medias for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get podcasts. Five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So get this little podcast some upsizing by spreading the word with a nice review. Uh, in your review, tell us if there's any more than the eight fucks. That's all for this week, <laughs> but we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. Yeah.